Welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and we're back in the podcasting studio. Firstly, apologies, dear listeners, for our impromptu hiatus after the election. As you'll hear in this episode, the election was a lot, and it's taken a few weeks for the dust to settle and for everyone to be available to have a post-election chat and assess how our new government is travelling. Scheduling would not allow for all of our Senate candidates to regroup for a chat, but Steve and I were joined by Victorian Senate candidate Leonie Green. Leonie, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands upon which we're recording and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. Before we get cracking with this, I do want to make a shout out to uh, one of our listeners, Aaron Crooks, who reached out to the Twitter team and just said, hey, is the, the podcast ever coming back? And instantly became my new favourite for not only listening to us, but also caring enough about the podcast to ask about it. So Aaron, this episode nice. is dedicated to you. Thank you for listening. So Dave and Leone, uh, unfortunately, Roger and Luke couldn't make it tonight. So we'll just get the three of us in to do a bit of postmortem on the election and the last sort of couple of months since the election and see, you know, the go through the seismic shift that Australian politics has been through and see where we're tracking. And, and Leonie's got some exciting news in Victoria that we'll get to, I'm sure. Steve, how are you feeling post-election? Like, have, have you recovered? Have I recovered? Yes, yes. So, I mean, <laughs> for, for me personally, the, the election was you know, an, an incredible experience. I, I, I will say that. I was, I was deeply honoured to be selected as a candidate in New South Wales. I was, I was equally honoured to be selected as the first name on the Senate ticket in New South Wales. But I was, I was also honoured to have that opportunity to get out and represent the party in public. I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to go out and talk to people. I, I talk to people all the time, but this time I had a good excuse to do it. And to, you know, to, to go into cafes, to go into the local butcher shop, to go into a retail store, wherever I happened to find myself and, and speak to those people and ask them how they were doing and, and try and understand what the issues were that were impacting them, whether that was, you know, how the economy was tracking or their ability to find workers or whatever it might have been. And, and it really did vary. But I really enjoyed that opportunity. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a real honour to be able to do that as an Australian Democrat Senate candidate in a federal election. I, I, that, that means uh, and continues to mean a lot to me. It was also the culmination of, of a good two years effort getting the party ready to stand in the election, working on a number of different policy platforms, working on building up our membership, you know, helping in those areas to try and make sure that the party was in as good a position as we could be going into that federal election. And so at, at the end of it, although we, we, we weren't successful and I wasn't successful, as I, as I said to you uh, before we started recording, I, I, I lost. I, I'm not a senator in the in the federal parliament um, as much as I, I, I wanted to be. I, I also like spent those two years wanting politics in Australia to be different, wanting our representation in Australia to be different. The reason I started in the first place is because I was 
disaffected and disappointed in the way in which the coalition was governing the country. And after the 2019 election, I really couldn't bear the thought of sitting back, not getting involved and allowing them to win another election. I just I just couldn't stay on the sidelines. So from that point of view, even though, you know, like I wasn't successful, Australia has shifted course. So like in, in that regard, that was that was wonderful. That part of it was really, really good. And and I know we're going to talk about what the last eight weeks with an ALP government has been like, but there's like I'm I'm still unpacking my own feelings in terms of how how do I feel about how the party went? How do I feel about how the election went as a whole? Seeing the new representatives stand up and give their maiden speeches over the last week has been deeply moving. It's been wonderful to see. And I'm also really motivated to stick with it, stay at it, and, you know, in 2025 be pushing again to try and get an Australian Democrat elected. Awesome. Leonie, you unfortunately, I think, fell ill on the final week of the campaign, which was just devastating. So obviously, thankfully, you're you're nicely recovered and everything now, but um, how was everything for you? So, yeah, so COVID got me at the last. So that last week was not fun. It was amazing what we were able to do online. (laughs) Um, And that reminder of, I think the, the classic was the virtual tour, effectively, of Bendigo that we did because... We were supposed to be there in person, so we were able to flip a whole lot of things to in person. Sorry, to virtual, I should say. Everything that Steve just said really rang true. I think the the day after the election, I had this sense that I could breathe again, and I don't think that's because I was campaigning. <laughs> really had nothing to do with that. It actually just had this, I just felt like I exhaled, like I had been holding my breath for more than three years and and it, I could let it go. And, in fact, it's funny how often I've heard people use that analogy of they could, they could breathe again, they exhaled. And I think as a country we have collectively exhaled and things are just shifting in a new direction and it's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen probably at the speed that a lot of people would want it to be. But there is a sense of hope again. There's a sense of transitioning to something that has more meaning and more depth. And uh, like Steve has said too, the, the maiden speeches in the last week have just been an absolute joy. I have some new favourite politicians <laughs> I've been following. My favourite one actually is a WA politician, WA independent, Kate Cheney. Oh, she's wonderful. Um, Amazing, amazing maiden speech. And each of those maiden speeches, each of those independents, to see those independents actually stand up, and, you know, this is is a Democrats podcast. I wanted the Democrats in the Senate, clearly. But there is something that I keep seeing as analogous, I think, to what the independents are doing in the lower house and have the ability to do in the lower house. I've got to say part of it, you know, again, like, you were saying, Steve, I'm still processing all of this and what this means. In many ways, I was one of those people who was kind of almost gunning for a minority government. <laughs> I kind of thought that that was, that was our opportunity to see real change at a, at a different sense of speed and real conversations in that lower house. I mm. think 
it's not going to happen in the way that we want it to. That group of independents will be fascinating and amazing to watch, but it's just not going to be quite the same as what it might have been with the minority government. Each time I hear them speak and, and what I see happening, I just have this sense of hope again and just a sense of pride again, actually, about being an Australian. And that's a kind of strange thing to recognise that I know that I wasn't feeling um, proud at all. I I was feeling deeply embarrassed and deeply anguished really about where we were at as countries. So to just feel like we can breathe through it again and to actually start having some conversations that are deeper conversations and conversations that go to the heart of who we really are and what we do stand for and what we won't stand for, um, that that's exciting to me. So, I, Steve, I think we won. <laughs> I, I think there There's is... There's only one as a country. There is a, there, mm. Exactly. There is a huge win that we had in just seeing that overwhelming shift. And I think one of the things that I have often reflected on um, when people have asked me about what the campaign was like, and it was about having those conversations with people, the excitement of people wanting to talk politics, but it was an election that that just had this different energy about it. There was a really clear sense of we want change, we want something different. And that's different for everybody in terms of what they're looking for. Um, But it was exciting to be a part of for that reason. Hmm. I I sort of look on it just on that that energy side of it. I I haven't really seen or felt that since 2007. Hmm. And, And prior to that, probably 1993 maybe, maybe 96, although the result in 96 wasn't anywhere like what I would want it to have been. But certainly in 93, I remember, you know, like just uh, a, a, a real interest and uh, a, a real desire to see a particular result and, and people actively working really hard for it was was interesting to see. What about you, Elena? Look, very much similar to you guys. I mean, um, as, as you said, Stephen, for you and I, it had been like two years of solid work to get the party ready, keep it registered. I mean, the um, as we said in the very first episode of the podcast, the, the government sort of conspired to change the rules and try and, you know, prevent minor parties like us from running in elections. But we bucked that trend and, and sort of came back stronger and, uh, than ever. And, yeah, I, I also feel like I'm still processing. I remember like the, the sort of the first week after the election, I felt like I fell in a bit of a heap and it was not a, not in a bad way, but just in the, that sense of I, I felt like I had been pushing against the embedded corruption and malaise of the Morrison government for what the two were for years. And there's the, the, the dawning realisation that that government was gone and that shift had happened and all of a sudden I had nothing to push against. And I remember saying to our national president, Lynn Allison, that we were going to have to change our messaging quite quite drastically, not because we uh, weren't interested in keeping uh, holding the Albanese government to account, because obviously we are, but just that the Albanese government is is a completely different beast. It's completely, it is not quite yet so overtly corrupt and, and incompetent as the Morrison government. And I was like, God, where do we begin? Like, how do we, what's, and especially in that first week when Albanese and Penny Wong sort of hit the international trail and were quickly running around the world repairing all the relationships that the Morrison government had torpedoed over the last three years and now being visible and visibly competent and, and as you said, Leone, suddenly making Australians proud to be Australian again and not embarrassed and ashamed. 
that was a real sort of topsy-turvy time sort of mentally and emotionally. I think not just for me but I think for a lot of people in the country to go, oh, the PM's overseas and he's not embarrassing us on the world stage. And and people like other world leaders are excited to see him. That was weird. <laughs> In a yeah. really good way, but really weird. Even now, I was listening to the New Politics podcast yesterday and mm. you know, shout out to, to Eddie and Dave who always do a, a brilliant job. And Eddie was saying, oh, you know, and the PM said, commented on, on whatever issue it was that they were discussing. And then he cut to, and I, I sort of flinched, and then he cut to audio of Anthony Albanese and I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. I I don't have to go into the fetal position whenever I hear Scott mm. Morrison's voice anymore because I'm not going to. That's delightful. <laughs> and that novelty has not worn off. <laughs> oh. So, yeah. And, and same thing, like, obviously, we all desperately wanted the Democrats to to get in and resume our place in the Senate. Mm. And the, the Democrats overcame a lot the last two years to get into a position where we could contest the federal election. There was a lot against us. And so I, I, I'm not sad that we lost you know, quote unquote, I feel like, uh, you know, the federal election served as an extraordinary PR opportunity for us in reminding people that we exist and, and, and letting people know that we're back. And and in a lot of cases, sort of reintroducing ourselves to a generation who probably don't remember us being in parliament. I mean, that was worth its weight in in in, in gold in a lot of ways. Like having, having the Democrats logo on the ballot in every state except for Tasmania, if, sorry, I should say every mainland state, was was brilliant. And yeah. bumping into people at pre-poll who were going, oh, the Democrats, oh, you know, and being excited to see Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. Leonie, I have, to, I, have to, I have to name drop, I met Kate Cheney at pre-poll one day. And she's wonderful. I actually had a little bit of a fangirl moment at her because I used to live in Curtin. I grew up in Curtin. Yeah, okay. And um, was quietly devastated that I no longer lived in Curtin and could not vote for her. Couldn't vote for her. Uh, because yeah. I, yeah. I would have. She was she was delightful. It was, a, it was a wonderful scene when Kate Cheney and seven of the other new independents were sworn in together. Yeah, it was um, beautiful. And they were they were called in, you know, sort of one by one and uh, – Dr. Scomps, Sophie Scomps in McKellar in, in northern uh, the northern beaches of Sydney was was one of them. But Monique Ryan and who else was in that? Colin and Tink. Zoe Daniel and, and like the, that yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, and and Kate Cheney as well. And and they came in together and they they swore their oaths. Di Lee was the other one who was oh, in yeah. that group. Um, I think from from Fairfield in uh, southwestern Sydney, which is where I grew up. You know, like it was it was a really nice moment to see them being sworn in together and to see the real, like, genuine excitement mm-hmm. and pride of this wonderful group of eight amazing people, eight amazing women as well. Uh, standing up to represent their communities. It was really, really good to see. Oh, it was so moving. You know, oh. like I've, I've never, and I, and I don't think it's just that I'm politically sort of engaged that I was riveted by the opening of Parliament this time around. I, I feel like the whole country was riveted by it and the, you know, there was so much more media attention and so much more media coverage of it because I feel like past opening parliaments has been, oh, yeah, whatever, they're back at it again kind of thing. They're but back this in one, it. yeah. Yeah, this one was, I think, really, really special and not just the community independence, just so inspiring. What I'm most excited about for politics coming out of this election is that sense of the 
you know, the electorate has re-engaged with our politics in a, in a big way. And, you know, it's not just that we have these community-built independent movements sort of springing up. It's it, it, I think it's the realisation that the country had that it's like, oh, no, 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 we don't have to put up with this crap anymore. We, and, and also not only do we not do we not need to put up with this, we can, we, we can hold our own politicians to a much higher account. We are not helpless victims of our political system. They represent us and we can find people to represent us better yeah. if, if they don't meet our standard. And I think that's the political system has actually come to grips with that yet. Um, certainly the, the the new opposition has not. But I also think in some ways the Labor Party hasn't quite gotten there. I, I think the next three years is going to be super interesting for them because, as, as a lot of people have noted, the Labor Party are not immune from a community-led revolt in their own seats as well. So they are, they are walking a tightrope over the next three years. I, I think it's entirely possible that history will show Cathy McGowan to be the most influential politician of the first half of this century, at least, if not yeah. this century, given the influence she has had over that community-minded and community-backed representative. And I, I, I hesitate to use the word independent because they are they are community-backed. And I, I'd rather refer to them as, as that. They're not affiliated with a party. Fine. Mm-hmm. That that part almost came second. The 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 reason we have a, a representative democracy in this country is so that people can be voted for by their community to represent their interests on that national stage. And what Kathy McGowan has done in Indi to begin and has helped spread into many other locations. I know like we, we had a number of independents, uh, uh, these, um, these community uh, candidates win, but there were a lot more who came close. There was some very close results where they didn't quite get up. Like there's a, there's a, a number in particular, Susie Holt in Groom um, mm. springs to mind in Queensland. Georgia Steele is another who, who came very close. But it shows, I, th- I think, and, and uh, Elena, to your point, I don't think the Labor Party is immune to these movements. If the community feels like they're not being listened to, if the community feels like their interests aren't being represented, that they're being overruled by or overridden by party politics instead, there is absolutely an opportunity for someone, you know, uh, within that community. And it's... It, it's not the person within the community who stands up and garners the support. It's the community themselves standing up saying, we need someone to represent us, but we as a community aren't happy anymore. And I, I, I really do think, I, to, to your point, I, I don't think the dynamics have, have even begun to really play out and I don't think the major parties have really wrapped their head around what it means for how our government operates. Absolutely not. And, you know, the Cathy McGowan model I think is so important because I forget where I heard this. It was on I I consume far too many podcasts and read far too much news to keep track of my sources, which is a terrible failing. But the point of the kitchen table-led discussions with the community were that, as you said, the community had that moment of going, no, we're not happy. And we need to do something about it. And and so the point was to, I think, you know, build the platform first 
highlight, you know, find the issues that the community were unhappy about and wanted solutions for and come up with the solutions that the community wanted to implement. And then they bring a, a candidate, you know, a suitable candidate in to lead that charge. But it was very much a case of the candidate comes last. And I think the fact that most of these movements were led by women is really, really telling because it had that consultative grouping together thing. And I can't, I think it was um I think it was one of the, the people who helped Kathy in the very, very beginning. And he said, you know, men sort of got involved in the beginning and their first thought was we need to go find a candidate. And they got told very, very quickly and very, very firmly, no, 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 we need to get the community behind us first because imposing another what was inevitably going to be another middle-aged white man onto the community to represent them was going to fail. It had to be a bottom-up, community-led, this is the platform that, you know, this is the foundation of what we want and then we find someone who is willing to speak to that. And it's staggering in its success. Leone, Indi is in northern Victoria. Well, it actually sort of wedges up from the the middle um, Middle. up. But do you you think we're going to see a similar set of community-backed independents uh, or candidates in the upcoming state election in Victoria? It's already started. So I think the, yeah, the advertisement certainly in queue, I think, was out on the weekend, which is where Monique Ryan has won. So that's yeah. really exciting to see. There's no difference, I think. No, let me take a step back. It, the Kathy McGowan model is so exciting, right? Because it's actually what politics is meant to be about. It's just that we've got these two historical major parties that are in the way of politics happening in a way that it should. Mm. And so Kathy has changed that and it could have gone any way in this last election, in the federal election, but what we have seen through those successes, and we saw it actually prior to that too in Kathy McGowan being able to really pass the banner, pass the baton to Helen Haynes, that was an, an incredible moment of success again for mm. a community based, I want to use the word independent now, but community-based representative. I love that change of, of wording and narrative too, Steve. And But, again, seeing all of the successes, seeing that group of incredibly impressive women stand up and um, become part of this parliament just gives me this sense of politics is changing, the conversations that we are having are, are changing, the people who are interested in volunteering and getting involved in politics is changing. We saw that through the extraordinary number of volunteers that the independent can that the community, the community representative candidates um, had in their backing. Now I, I think there is an element of the Morrison government was so wanting that there was an extreme reaction to that on multiple fronts. I don't think that is the case in terms of where Victorian politics are at at the moment. But what we have in Victoria is a Liberal Party that is just broken, completely broken, so we don't have an opposition that is ready to govern. It's (laughs) fundamentally flawed. You disagree, Steve, or are you? No, I, I think that is such a wild understatement of, of where the Liberal <laughs> oh, Party is in Victoria. It. <laughs> it, there is, they are, they are, <laughs> the, the, 
every appearance, every single media <laughs> appearance by them should be accompanied by, you know, comedy clown music or the theme from <laughs> the Benny Hill show or something. Yeah. It's just farcical. Awful. It's really, really I, awful. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want to take away from your point, which is that, there, you know, like there, there is an opportunity. Mm. I was going to say um, you're, you're being incredibly generous to them to say that they weren't ready to govern. I, I was going to say like you, you don't actually have a functional opposition over there. Never mind. They're not one that ready can to tie their really shoes. Come yeah. on, they're like, awful. Like, this is this is you know well clearly I like to be diplomatic in the way, <laughs> my use of language. Saying they're broken is pretty extreme for me, Steve. Yeah, that is that is a. <laughs> It's quite funny. Uh, so yes, they're not. They're they are deeply problematic. How's that? I, I find them deeply problematic in terms of the state that they are in, and anything that they say or have to offer is Benny Hill music would possibly help. Um, so there's that, but that in and of itself creates a problem as well. I don't want an opposition that is some of the oppositions that we have had previously. I don't want an opposition that is obstructionist. I don't want an opposition that just yells and shouts and is anti-everything that the government wants to do. That doesn't work either. So this is this is not about I want an opposition that is saying something that's at least a sentence. What I want is choice and that's where the opportunity lies for minor parties and for independence in this next election for Victoria. I think I I am happy to put on record that I think Daniel Andrews has done an extraordinary job in extraordinarily difficult circumstances and I love his social media team. His social media team should have huge awards because they are extraordinary in getting messages across. But I think he's been a great leader. I think he's been a great leader and he has led consistently and clearly through something that I don't know what previous premier, certainly not in my lifetime, <laughs> had to lead through. So I, completely that's where I stand. Having said that, I still want him to be held to account and his government to be held to account. Absolutely. And the current yes. opposition is in no way, shape or form able to do that and have not done that. And so, yes, they're not ready to govern. They're also not ready to and have not been <laughs> providing any alternate alternate in terms of opposition. No. Um, and so that that is where the opportunity is. I, I don't understand how the Liberal Party at any level, has not seen the writing on the wall prior to this election, but they didn't and they still don't if we look at some of the candidates they're putting yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm probably a silver lining person, right? <laughs> so <laughs> silver lining and diplomatic in the way that I talk about things. Um, the silver lining to me and my hope at the moment is actually that the Liberal Party just becomes a minor party at some point. Hmm. Hopefully yeah. sometime soon yeah. because that's kind of where they're going in terms of the interests that they are creating around them and their own branch stacking that they have done. The branch stacking that they have done is very much about very conservative religious right, like yeah. that's where they're going. And and we, we've seen the I'm same in, in New South Wales, Leone, like that, that, yeah. that shift. Yeah, okay. With, it's be, not becoming just a party, Becoming a party of the Christian right 
seems to be the direction that they're heading. I, I, I don't think that's um, Victorian only, although we, we haven't seen it manifest quite so much yet in Victoria. Yes, look, it, and WA is a it's a it's a lesson for all branches of the Liberal Party. You would because, think, yeah. Well, w, the WA branch was taken over by the religious right, and, and the now, WA now, party can now show up to Parliament in a um, convertible on a motorbike. But maybe that's that's you know again silver lining. Maybe that's kind of just where they're heading naturally, and that's okay. I'm mm-hmm. I'm all for. A diverse parliament, and yeah. and if that's what people want to vote in, that's okay. But can we please be honest about it? Can we please be open about this? Is actually who the party is now? Yeah. Because the Liberal Party is not the party that it once was. I think my my concern, Leonie, is that we we end up with the media representing the Liberal Party as a reasoned, balanced, informed option, rather than this increasingly fringe set of beliefs and, and ideas, which is where they are. Like when you when you look at the, yeah. the, the majority of views that the Liberal Party espouses and the sorts of things that they're fighting for, they're they're representative of maybe five to cent, uh, five to ten percent of the population sort of agrees with them. The media helps market them, if you like, to another 20 or 30%, which is how they end up with, you know, 30%, 35% of the vote. But it's not because their views align or their ideas align or their policies align. It's because they've got a lot of help. Well, isn't it just because the media are so used to having two major parties that they need to kind of provide some form of... Yeah, it's that sort of horse race reporting. Too, of, or... um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's that sort of two-horse race view of politics rather yeah. than... A realistic reflection of of where parties reflect the the electorate itself. Yeah, and so, and that also means. Sorry, I don't know. You go. I was just going to say that that is also the possibility or the opportunity that comes from the independents, because I've already seen far more coverage of what the independents are saying or doing than we saw from a Kathy McGowan or Helen Haynes time. Mm. There is a it's kind of like that yes they are not a party this community representative group of independent people (laughs) (laughs) are are giving that sense of there's there is another voice here that you need to listen to there is another voice that you need to actually put into the media and and that will change I think Mm. um it's not going to change a certain portion of our I think, Leonie, like one of the one of the things, and uh, Elena, I think it was you who, who mentioned it a few minutes ago. Those those kitchen table conversations. There is nothing stopping the Labor Party from doing the same thing. There is nothing stopping the Greens from doing the same thing. There is nothing stopping the National Party or the Liberal Party from doing something similar, and just sitting down and listening to their electorates. Like absolutely zero stands in their way other than their entire model of representation 
we, we don't really want to muddy the waters by going and asking people what they want, you know, like or what they're concerned about. We'd because much rather tell them what they should be. You know, we'd much rather tell them what they should be worried about and what they should mm-hmm. be concerned about than, than than ask them that question. So I've, I've got a, a couple of points. So Leonie, um, we were doing some, some Facebook advertising in Victoria for uh, reasons that will become apparent very shortly, and our graphic designer reached out to me on one of the ads, he had a picture of Daniel Andrews and, and of Matthew Guy, and he reached out to me and said, do you have any, like, be- like better stock photos of Matthew Guy because I can't find anything? And I said, no, I've got, no- <laughs> got nothing. And we actually had a laugh about how invisible the leader of the Victorian opposition was. <laughs> Weird it was. Tim Smith gets more airplay, actually, yeah. than Matthew Guy, Yeah, which yeah. is great for the Labor Party. <laughs> yeah, and because the, when, when the first sort of ad, ad creative came through for me to approve, I, I sort of reached out to our graphic designer and said, is that Matthew Guy, is that Tim Smith? And he said, oh, no, no, it's definitely Matthew Guy. I double-checked because I wasn't sure as well. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The agency we we're going through, I think, are based in Sydney and obviously I'm in WA, so both of us are a bit, oh, not sure about this. <laughs> so which I think, again, is a reflection, as, as you said before, of how dysfunctional and how um, unfit for govern the Victorian Liberals are. Like I've joked in the past many times on the podcast about WA to solving this problem by getting rid of our opposition altogether, but I I don't feel that there's a long-term solution because, as you said, we need a functional opposition. And, again, an opposition that, as you said, doesn't just oppose things for the sake of opposing things but makes politics a contest of ideas. And I think oppositions around the country, whether they be federal or um, at state level, have forgotten that they have a they perform a public service by presenting an alternative government to the people and challenging the government, holding the government to account, and pre- presenting alternate ways of achieving the right thing for the state or the country or the local council or whatever level of government we're dealing with. And I feel like that's really been lost over the last 20 years. And the Albanese then opposition came under long and sustained criticism for the fact that they either weren't opposing anything or, you know, the the whole small target strategy that, that Albanese deployed in order to get through the election and, and win the election. And obviously having won the election now, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, the man's a genius. But I think also in, in some ways it was a virtue of necessity, both like the circumstances over the last few years of the pandemic, the, you know, array of people in media who were, who were quite determined to prevent Labor winning this election. So he did have a very narrow sort of needle to thread there. But I also can't help but feel that, by taking that small target strategy in opposition, not necessarily in the election campaign, but in opposition, you know, like Labor, I think, learned the, the wrong lessons in some ways from the 2019 loss, but also, again, failed in their duty to provide that public service of being a credible and functional opposition. Because really, and again, I'm, I'm not sad about this, they stepped back and allowed the Morrison government to fail. <laughs> And, and it's that whole thing of never, ever get in the way of your enemy shooting himself in the foot strategy. And I can't fault Albanese for that. I mean, if the Democrats were in opposition and, and we were dealing with a government of the likes of the Morrison government, we too, as a matter of strategy, would probably step back and let them implode. 
but it does diminish our politics when that happens. And I think the, the electorate is seeing there is more than the two-horse race, that there are, you know, you can have representation, an incredibly successful representation outside of the party system. And, and this is, I think, also like the, the two-party system because we haven't even touched on how, on how the Greens went to the election. And I think also there's a whole bunch of people who will now look at the parliament and go, oh, we can have representation from independent community representatives. We can have minor parties rep- represent you know, our communities just as well as the two majors. Like this whole default, oh, well, your vote doesn't matter because it eventually ends up with it one or one of the or the other of the two majors at the end of the day, I think is a false binary. And I think it's finally been revealed as a false binary and people are like, oh, no, we can have a diverse and complex parliament, I guess, in terms of representation. It doesn't have to be two blocks of, of the same kind of people representing us. And that's going to make for a really, really exciting decade, I think. Yeah, and we, have, we can have someone who is our representative, who is our person in our community, who knows and lives in and wants to serve our community yeah. as opposed to serve a party politic. Like it, it, it's just that's the change. That's mm. the refreshing, exciting possibility of what democracy in Australia could actually look like and, and is already starting to look like. Because obviously the focus is on the community representatives who happen to be unaffiliated with parties at the moment. I think also there's a lesson here for minor parties because one of the things that I found fascinating during the election campaign, and and Catherine Murphy mentioned this a number of times across different um, forums, was that the independents, the the, community independents seemed to be filling the void that the Democrats had left. I did not hear the Democrats referred to in the media as often as I did during the election campaign. And what was funny to me was that it was completely divorced from the fact that the Democrats were running in that election. <laughs> there was a lot of talk about our, our historical role in the parliament and the seismic shift that happened in the late 70s, early 80s when the Democrats first arrived in the Senate and then in 1983 when we took the balance of power for the first time and the role that we served. And people were looking at the at the community independence and going, we haven't had a big split in politics like this since the Democrats turned up. Because um, we were born out, in a similar way, we were born out of a failing, right? Yeah. It, we were born out of a failing of the Liberal Party. Yes. <laughs> Don Chip had had enough. The, these, independ- these independents, these community-minded <laughs> community representatives, um, these community representatives are doing exactly the same thing. They're yeah. saying enough already. This party is not the party that I would otherwise sign up to. So here's, here's, here's a, like a, a, a crazy idea, but this time I, I, I just checked while, while you were chatting, I just checked, and this parliament, the 47th parliament, has 62% male representatives, 38% uh, identifies women, 62% are, are men. I think the 48th parliament will be majority women. Wow. I think the 48th Parliament will have a majority of women MPs because I think what we've seen in this election will go another big step forward and a lot more a lot more people will be representing their communities and those communities seem keen to select 
women as their representatives in a way that party politics seems to favour men. Mm. And if we continue just a little bit further down this path, I think we're going to end up with the 2025 election and the 48th Parliament seeing a majority of women for the first time in our federal parliament. God, that would be magnificent. Be pretty amazing change, really. Yeah. And and again, it would you, be. you have it to would be. tip your hat to Cathy McGowan. <laughs> like the, this change that we've already seen in this parliament, as you said earlier, Steve, it, that started with Cathy. Yeah. I, I think the major parties will be more likely to pre-select female candidates or at least non-male candidates. I think the Liberal Party will almost certainly have to. I think the National Party will almost certainly have to. I think the the number of the community-backed candidates will increase. It won't be eight or nine next time around. It'll be 15, mm. you know, like it's it, it, it will increase. It will be interesting to see, but I, I, I almost feel like there will be a minority government in the lower house and the only really strong showing you'll see will be in the upper house for the for the parties yeah you know the 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 upper house will be the chamber of the parties and the lower house will become the chamber of community representatives which makes it even more sorry it makes it even more that, like that is the role that the Democrats then need to play, right? Yes, yes. That's yes. where that's where we've got to be because think, that's where we can then make that difference. Yes, I yeah. think you and I were both rushing in to make the same point, but no, you're right. And I look, I, I would, I would love, I would love the 48th Parliament to be as Steve just described. I'm not sure, 100 percent sure that the Liberals will finally grasp the, the, the notion that that they need to select women in time for the 48th parliament i think they'll, they'll lose if they the, don't and they'll yeah. lose to female independence if yes, they, they will oh yeah and look your logic is completely sound i'm not disputing your logic i i just don't think the liberal party are going to catch up they're to not, you in time they're, they're not, not going to play the part that I've, I've laid out for them that's fair enough that's fair. because i think and look and look we're, we're judging very very early in i mean parliament's literally only came back the, the week that we are um we're, we're recording this sure. but by judging by you know their first week in parliament it's very very clear that the liberal party have learned nothing from their defeat They've, they've even come out and said explicitly that it's not them that needs to learn a lesson. It's the electorate that needs to better understand the Liberal Party, that that's yes. a problem, yes. which was a phenomenal takeaway for a federal yeah. election in which you lose government after three um, three terms to go, yeah, I just, I just don't think the electorate gets us. I think yeah. that's the problem. Yeah, right. When that came out, a friend of mine reached out to me with it just and just, just to go, what? Like, did, did you see that? And I sent back to him the Simpsons meme of, is it me? No, 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 the children are wrong. Because that's what it encapsulated. So on that basis, I'm not confident that the Liberals will have this sort of road to Damascus moment where they go, oh, we, we need to pre-select women if we sure. want to remain relevant. Sure. I think they will come very, very close to being wiped out of Parliament before that necessary uh, sort of introspection happens, and I think if it's you know if they actually survive the forty eighth parliament, 
as a party, it'll be the 49th parliament where they actually start to, to rebuild and actually hopefully sort of come back to the being the party of Menzies, which is they've, they've strayed very, very far from. And, look, I'm with Leone. I would love nothing more than the Liberals to be reduced to minor party status and for them to actually be wiped out as a party altogether because I'm going to fly my, my um, uh, you know, massive political biases high here. Uh, so to get back to the point about the Senate, I do think that you are right in that because of the nature of the way the Senate um, vote occurs, it's next to impossible for an independent to, to be elected. David Pocock's achievement in being elected as an independent, first of all, is extraordinary. I mean, that yes. is, and arguably he could only have done that in the ACT. Um, yeah. Even though the ACT only has two senators, yeah. Yeah. that was the correct electorate to be able to to vote an independent in. Like in, in a bigger state where you have six senators who get elected each year, no. he would have had Buckley's, despite the fact that he was an excellent candidate and ran an excellent campaign and thoroughly deserves can, to be there. You can maybe do it in a double dissolution election. Yes. May, yeah. may, may, maybe. maybe. And even then, and even then it's hard. But you're, yes, you're, you're yeah. right. Yeah. So by so the, by the nature of the Senate, it, it will you're right. It will default to being the chamber of the parties, but I I don't think for long. I think I think the electorate will go. Oh no, that's unacceptable. No 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 no. We've 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 broken the party duopoly in the lower house. We mm. will not tolerate it in the House of Review, which is the Senate. Yeah. And I think then there will be the rise of minor parties again in the Senate, because mm. they will go. No, we want a diverse Senate to work cooperatively with our diverse parliament and yeah. having two-party majority in the Senate will be unacceptable to the electorate, which is, as Looney said, this is where we come in. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Because exactly I think right. also I think the limitations of community-based representatives, because there are limitations, and, again, it is not a reflection on, on the movement, it's not a reflection on the extraordinary candidates that they've put up and will continue to put up, but... The Westminster system of government kind of needs to have parties in there. Like that, that's what it's designed around. And so we'll get to a stage where the community representatives will either have to make a very, very uh, large coalition of um, of representatives, which will become a party on you know by another name. H- having having seen a diversity of representation in Parliament, I think that would hopefully lead, you know feed into a rise of minor parties um as well because the alternative is not you don't have to reject you know political parties as a whole in order to find people to represent you properly if if i use helen haynes a integrity commission bill as mm. a model and take the major parties out of the equation. So think about the way that she has gone about developing that bill with a lot of consultation, a lot of work with people like the Centre for Public Integrity, I think they're called. The, yes. Uh, working with independent groups, engaging with her parliamentary colleagues to put forward and improve and discuss, and she's been sort of working, working, working away at it. That could easily be a functional model of government in a lower house that doesn't have anything like um, um, even a an, even a, a large minority party mm. in existence. If instead you had 156 
community-backed in independent candidates uh, representing their communities and people putting forward bills and, and working behind the scenes and debate and questions and all of that kind of stuff. I, I agree. We, we're not currently set up for it. You know, the whole notion of how question time works and and the, the idea of prime minister and all the rest of it would need to be revisited. But it, it represents some exciting shifts in the dynamic of the way in which our parliament operates, and I'm I'm, I'm interested to see it. Oh yeah, like to have like a a, a minor part, uh, not a minor party, a minor government, <laughs> minority government. That's the word I was looking for. A, a minority government that you know, because in the past minority governments have, have relied on the crossbench for um, to guarantee supply, and I see no reason why you could not then like if the crossbench was twenty members big, why you could not sort of pick out the very best performers from that crossbench and bring them into your cabinet and, you know, make make uh, Zali Stegall Attorney General. You'd effectively you know, need to, right, yeah, at some point. Yeah, you know, but, but make Monique Ryan the health minister. Why not? I was hoping, I was <laughs> hoping that one of those MPs from the crossbench would have been given the speaker's role. Yes. Um, just as a... Just as a symbol, just as a sign, we are paying respect to the crossbench. We are being open. We're sharing the the reins of power and all of that kind of stuff. I was I was really hoping we didn't see it, obviously, uh, and and I get that. Labor's in government, yeah. and they 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 get to call those shots. When I kind of was hoping, but yes. this is this is something that we saw with Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. You know, like her party won a majority government and yet you have ministers from other parties in cabinet and i i I love that model i think it's great and it's not so alien to us because the coalition it's literally they've essentially been doing that for decades you know, so so when when this sort of idea got floated and people were going, "That's madness!" What do you, no, you can't do that. And it's like, um, no, no, we have been for decades, because the Liberal Party, even when they actually won a majority and were able to govern in their own right, always have chosen to govern in coalition with the Nationals. And people overlook the fact that under under the present sort of um, uh, way things are constructed. Only the Labor government, only, only the Labor Party has ever governed in their own right. Liberals have always governed in coalition with um, the Nationals and, and essentially have always been a minority government. Just that we always see the coalition as a single party and we don't click that, well, technically the Libs are in minority. They're really not, um, yeah. And, you know, and the demonisation of the 43rd Parliament where Julia Gillard ruled in minority has really sort of poisoned the well for the electorate on terms of minority government because apparently that's disastrous and and you know it's it's chaos and the country will will uh, fall to pieces if it ever happens but New Zealand is a shining example of how a constructive minority government can work literally for decades and other governments around the world it, it is really really common to govern in minor coalition in Europe, in a number of European countries, okay, the, but even in the UK, they frequently had coalition governments of, of you know, where they've cobbled together two or three parties to, to, to make up government. And I think it can only be to our benefit for that model to emerge in Australia because you need that diversity of ideas and you need that 
you know, that that challenge of negotiating legislation through the House because it only improves it. Can we can we talk for a moment about how the ALP has been going in its first eight weeks? Yeah, let's do it. It's had eight weeks. It's had eight weeks. It's time like we do a, an, an interim report. First few days, sworn in as PM Monday morning on a on a plane to uh, Japan, I think it might have been, for a quad meeting later that day. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese off on, I know we're going to like rename it, um, he's a Rabbitohs fan, so it should be Rabido one rather than Shark one. Um, oh, dear. God, but... You know, like he's it's, it's off, off to off to Japan to represent Australia, um, and that seems to have begun a pretty solid few weeks' work for him and Penny Wong repairing Australia's very, very damaged reputation on the world stage. Got to yeah, look, got to give them an A for that. That was that took everyone by surprise. I think yeah, everybody knew that the court was coming up and that he would have to be sworn in and basically bolt to the airport. So that, that wasn't a shock, but the deftness with which he, he handled his first overseas appearance as prime minister, I think took a lot of people by surprise. Yeah, it, was good. it was good to see. He's done well. Like he, he was, he, he did the country proud, brand new in the role, but, you know, and because people overlook the fact that Albanese is a very, very experienced political operator. Like everyone sort of, you know, has sort of been this attitude of him being the PM on L plates, but it's like he, he's, had a long, he's had a long apprenticeship, let me put it that way. And Penny Wong at least has been, you know, foreign minister in the past, so she was sort of just putting putting that mantle back on and getting on putting, with the job. Putting, putting the cape back on and, and That's right. you know, like... Taking off. That was, yeah. I mean, that was that was really good to see. Yeah, so great. So the first couple of weeks, extraordinary. You know, just extraordinary work and extraordinary progress. No one expected. I think that's the speed at which they repaired those relationships to to have been done. You know, at at, at quite that speed. Well done, Alana. And then on the domestic front, they sort of hit a few potholes. So the. The yeah. fact that they they tried to to continue with you know Morrison arbitrarily cut off pandemic payments to low income people just before the election and said right cut off dates going to be thirty first of July we're done and that the Labor government tried to continue running with that line I think did them a great disservice I understand why I understand because you know they are so paranoid about fiscal responsibility and getting the budget back under control and all that sort of stuff. But I feel like that was a, that was an own goal because just because everyone's decided that the pandemic's over, and when I mean everyone, I mean the media and the, and the political class, like I'm a, like you know, COVID hasn't got that memo yet. And as much as we all desperately want the pandemic to be over, we want to get, get on with our lives and pretend that, that a deadly virus is no longer circulating through the community, the deadly virus hasn't caught up with us yet and decided to, to disappear. And so the simple reality is if you if you want to help people navigate that and not continue to spread the deadly virus, you're going to have to support them when they need to isolate and they don't have sick leave. That's just brutal reality. And trying to go, oh, well, the previous government put this in place and we can't change it was unbecoming of them, I think, because it's like, well, what is the point of you being in government then? You know, what, what, what did we just upend our political world for if not for you to change stuff? 
So I was very disappointed with them over that. I was really glad that they backtracked and that they fixed it and uh, yeah, they've extended those payments out. That was an unnecessary own goal. And the other thing that got me also was trying to make out that they couldn't afford it when the stage three tax cuts are still legislated. Absolutely had me seeing red. It's like, do not come at me with we cannot afford anything when is what, $120 billion worth of tax cuts for rich people still in the books? More? It starts oh, at it starts at fifteen point six billion and increases up to eighteen billion and and beyond. It's ridiculous that it's still there. And some of the some of the stuff that they're cutting back on spending is is silly. You know, mm. like you you you're not even talking about pennies in in the context of a of a national budget. You're, you're talking. No fractions, fractions, fractions of a percent and going, yeah, well, we've got to curtail spending, so we, 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 we have to be responsible. It's, it's not credible. No. I think also the, the, the fact that they made it really, really clear that they're not even going to look at raising JobSeeker. I think a lot of people are disappointed at that. And, and this is the thing. I, I, I want to come back to the sort of broader, just, just for a moment, mm. the broader election strategy of, you know, small target and everyone going, look, let them get elected and then when they're elected, then they can do this stuff. But until they get elected, they can't do it. If they come out with policies like raising the JobKeeper rate, they're going to get, you know, slaughtered in the press. They'll never get, they'll never get into government. You've got to give them some air, you know, like, please support the strategy, let them get elected. And they've been elected, and now it's like, well, what 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 do you expect from them? They said mm. during the election they weren't going to do that. Now you're trying to hold them to account for, well, this is why during the election we said actually we we need you to promise this kind of stuff because it's it's not okay. It's not okay that we have 1.2 million families in this country living in poverty. It's not okay that one in six children and, and teenagers are, are, are living in poverty in this country. It's not okay that as a matter of economic policy, we maintain a cohort of people who are unemployed so that we can wave the cautionary flag at insecure workers and say, well, at least you're not like them. We set the job seeker rate at poverty levels, like at below poverty levels. I think it's like half the, uh, the, the poverty line at the moment. And, oh, and then say, well, look, we, we, we can't afford it. It's, mm. it's absolute bullshit. And, it, and mm. it really is something that boils my blood because yeah. we, we then sit there and say, yeah, well, it's already been legislated that we've got these tax cuts for high income earners and, 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 and that's good for the economy. And again, that's complete bullshit. It's not good for the economy at all. Like that money, and I'll, I'll benefit from it. Me personally, I'll benefit from the state three tax cuts. I'll be better off to the tune of about $9,000 a year, $180 a week or so. You know, like good on me. I don't need it. I just don't need it. I definitely don't need it more than some family that's living below the poverty line on 40 bucks a day. It's, it's obscene that we would sit there and go that 
200,000 high-income earners need to get an extra $9,000 uh, a, a year and and we at the same time sit there and talk about budget repair by screwing over low-income households. It's, it's absolutely obscene. And that's before we get into the high-inflation environment that we're in because well, $46 a day was obscene before cost of living went through the roof. Yeah. It is criminal now and i've called it criminal in the past but you understand the point and yeah like like do not come at me with this cannot afford it bullshit while people like your good self steve are are, are due to you know in 2024 are due to benefit to the tune of nine grand a year just don't just i'm doing just fine thank you use that money for 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 something else instead and there are you know like i'll i'll happily pocket it I'll happily pocket that money when people aren't living on the streets, when people aren't living out of their cars, when people can uh, don't have to choose between medicines to uh, treat their chronic illnesses or food for their family. You know, like those those sorts of decisions. When those are all in the past, sure, by all means, give me a tax cut. But in the meantime, far out. Just. Put it where it's needed. It really is obscene that we're talking about $15 billion a year could fund an increase of the job seeker rate and the age pension up to the Henderson poverty line. Increase it to about $88.50, I think, is where the, the poverty line is at the moment. Costs about 125 to $13 billion a year. And I know that because we did it for 18 months during the early part of the pandemic. That's, that's basically what, what it cost us. Yeah. $12.5 billion a year, not the $90 billion a year that we spent on corporate tax breaks to increase the, the um, asset tax write-off from twenty grand to $150,000 so that you could automatically write off a, a, an asset purchase, not that $90 billion, just twelve and a half. It, it, it is criminal. And for a new Labor government, to come in, and, and this is this is the government that we want, that that we we think and hope will look after the little person, will look after low income earners, will look after the worker. Sits there and goes, "Hey, oh, look, sorry, our, our hands are basically tied. We can't do it." Mm. Bullshit. Of course yeah. you can. Of course yeah. you can, and you should. Mm. Maybe I'm being naive here, but I don't understand who it is that they're frightened of. I mean, like, sure, the Murdoch media are going to give them shit. The Murdoch media have been giving them shit literally for 50 years. Like, this is not a new environment for them. They're not right? going to stop. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And also, they're not going to stop if you, if you kowtow to, to whatever bullshit you know, is, is getting spouted on Sky News. So where is the political cost going to come from in, in, in raising JobSeeker to a living wage? Because it's not going to come from the electorate. Most people, uh, most reasonable people, I should say, Having lived through the last two years of the pandemic, having seen queues around the block outside Centrelink of people who have never had to deal with Centrelink in their lives, that was a massive wake-up call for the nation. I don't think there's any political skin to lose, particularly now, in raising not just job seeker but disability pension, age pension, you know, all the payments to livable because we're not, the people we're not we're not talking about a lot of money. Like for for the people who are the recipients of of those amounts, they're not. We're we're still not talking about a lot of money. We're we're talking about we're still talking about people living at the poverty line. We're not talking about them rolling in hundred dollar bills and and 
smoking Cuban cigars. We're talking yeah. about them literally no longer having to choose between medicine and food or whether or not they can fill the car with gas so that they or petrol so that they can get to work. We, we're not talking about a great deal of largesse here. Like it's 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 pretty pretty basic stuff. It's a small amount, but it was you know we saw during the pandemic it was transformative for those people. Like yeah, literally life-saving. So as a new government, surely those people, like if that happened in the term of government, surely those people would be pretty freaking happy about it yeah. and would be willing to park their vote with the government that saved their lives because those people aren't listening to the Murdoch press. They're too busy trying to survive. Yeah. And yeah. And, that's, that's, and that's before. before yeah. <laughs> So to go down yes, another rabbit yeah, hole, yeah. that's before we get into the billions upon billions of dollars that we spend propping up the policing of poor people and trying to get them into work, which Rick Morton uh, outlined to <sighs> devastating effects in a piece in the Saturday paper a couple of weeks ago. That really made me angry, that piece. It really, it really did make me make make me angry. I think uh, he indicated in in the article it was is something like seven point eight billion dollars a year goes towards the um, the employment industry. Let's call them that. But it was made quite clear in in that article that that's not really what's happening. That essentially you've got an industry that is parasitic almost, and and to the tune of billions of dollars. And again, mm-hmm. you know, like. I, I could find better things to do with those billions of dollars than spend it punishing people who are out of work because we've set the economy up such that they are always out of work. We, we, we can and, and, and we should do better. And, and I, along with a lot of people, I think were hopeful that the Labor government, when they came in, would at least indicate that they were going to do that kind of thing. And, and I'm so far disappointed that they haven't. Yeah. To be fair, then they're eight weeks in. But it's the kind of no-brainer stuff that I would have thought that, like a, a new government riding, riding the, the, the crest of the honeymoon wave yep. like would have done. And I, I, I think, I, I think, Elena, they, they could have come in and said, look, we, we're going to look at cancelling the state street tax cuts. We're going to look at increasing the job seeker rate. We've got a job summit coming up later in the year. That's going to be one of the things on the agenda. Part of the way that we're going to fund it, we're going to cancel those tax cuts. They're not going to happen. We'll legislate. We'll work with the crossbench to, to cancel them out. We're going to look at, I don't know, a super profits tax on the oil and gas industry or the coal oil and gas industry that are currently reaping billions of dollars in, in profit and not paying any tax on them. Let's let's keep some for the country. You know, like in, in any number of those sorts of things that they at least indicated that they would be doing would be a, a positive step forward. But I think out of out of anyone, any group of people in this country looking at the new Labor government who have have every right to feel disappointed it's the un- unemployed for me mm, absolutely yeah. yeah and sorry one more before before we um you know get off the, the economic high horse sure. and and let paul leone back into the conversation one thing that has had me seeing absolutely read this week is the employment rate has fallen to 3.5 percent and everyone's gone isn't this amazing it's so great and i privately lost my shit um <laughs> Sort of in, in the privacy of, of my bathroom to the cash when I heard this on the news because for years we've held the unemployment rate to 5% in the belief that that would be keeping inflation under control. 
And it turns out that we didn't need to do that, that the economy would not collapse into an inflation hellhole if more people were allowed to find work. As you've said a number of times on the podcast, Steve, we have deliberately kept people out of work to serve as a buffer for the economy. And it turns out that the buffer didn't need to be 5%. It could actually operate quite nicely at 3.5%. Well, it, it also turns out that the thing driving inflation is not wages anyway. Like some, some nice analysis done recently by the Australia Institute, and, and hello, Richard, if you're, if you're listening, clearly showed that actually the thing that is having a much bigger impact on prices at the moment is corporate profits. Mm. Companies are increasing their prices because everyone seems to expect them to be going up because world events means that there's like this sort of free pass to increase rates, to increase prices. And, mm. and no one will give you a hard time about it because it's it's one of those things that there's an inflation thing. So prices are going up and there's a gas crisis or an oil crisis or a war in Ukraine. So, of course, prices are going up. Mm. Um, I saw something uh, yesterday that the, the five major oil and gas companies in the world are about to post $50 billion in profits for the quarter. Oh, my God. For the June quarter, $50 billion in profit for the June quarter. So there you go. Leonie, thoughts from, thoughts from you? I, I'm i going to move right away from the economy for a moment and, and I'm going to go back to the theme that I had earlier about the day after the election, mm-hmm. feeling this sense of potential again in who we are as a nation and what we can do. And the Gama Festival speech yesterday, for me, confirmed the possibilities that are open to us again now. To have a Prime Minister who, from election night, without hesitation and without any awkwardness, actually just with full heart, commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and to see that come around in eight weeks and to see that speech was just... I had that moment again of just going, I'm, I'm proud again. And, oh, yeah. and we have the potential as a country to feel collectively proud and to start doing the work. And, and it's not going to be easy and it's a long no. road ahead, but it, we need to start doing the bloody work. We need to do the work to actually come together as a country, recognise the shit that's happened. There's a whole lot of shit there that we as a country, have been in denial for so long about. Mm. And we're just at the, I just feel like it's that point in time again that because he is doing it so early in this parliament, we have have potential again. We have possibility. We have hope. So that, that to me sets an enormous tone about yeah. who we are and what we can do. Yeah. And yeah. I, 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 I agree, Leonie, and I, I think if I sort of look, Parliament's been sitting for, for only a, a, a matter of days when we record this, and in addition to the Gama Festival, we've seen movement on aged care, we've seen movement on domestic violence, like paid domestic violence leave, like those are, those are good things. We've seen movement on the emissions reduction legislation, and I'm, I, I, I have my uh, critiques of that, but I, I agree with you. These have been some really sort of positive 
positive shifts. There's movement at the station. Yes, and it's a really, really important point, I think, to, to, to end on because having just got done kicking them quite severely for failing to solve the, the deep-seated structural problems that lead to poverty in this country, we should definitely acknowledge the extraordinary strides that they have made in fixing other deep-seated structural problems, which is Indigenous recognition and healing those deep wounds in the country. And particularly on a weekend when we just learned of the passing of Archie Roach, which is a catastrophic loss for the nation. I mean, what what a voice and and, and in, in more ways than one. It, it's, it's so needed. So thank you for bringing us back on track with that, Leonie. And now you do have to run off, but before you go... The Victorian Division has some exciting news for us. We do. So as of only 48 hours ago (laughs) or thereabouts, we have put in our paperwork to be a registered party in Victoria, which is really exciting. So we will be ready for the state election this year. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. So, so that whole conversation earlier about the need for choice in Victoria and the need <laughs> for a different sort of conversation and deeper level conversation, that to me has always been what the Democrats are about and uh, that is absolutely what is needed in Victoria right now too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really exciting. I'm, yeah. Super excited for it. Too. Oh, and we're so proud as well because I mean, you know, the last couple of years, as, as we said at the, the start of the podcast, has actually been on on the federal election and, and getting us ready for that. And so to be able to take strides to then extend our representation at a state level in Victoria so soon after the federal election was extraordinary. And the Victorian team did such like they worked so hard. They came off the federal election straight into getting getting everything ready that they needed to get, including, you know, recruiting new members, which is what the advertising that we were, I was referring to earlier was about. The hard the hard work begins now in terms of developing policy platforms that are specific to Victoria. And I think it's going to be a huge ask for to expect the Democrats to become a functional opposition in Victoria just yet. But at least you can start laying down that that foundation. <laughs> Maybe so. we can show the opposition how it's done. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think that what the exciting part too that I, I have already seen in the last few weeks is just the energy of the new members that are joining us mm. as well. And I just want to do a shout out to Brian Paris who has been absolutely the tireless person in the background doing extraordinary work to get us to where we are um, or where we were on Friday. And Ryan has been having conversations with a number of these new members that have come on board. And it was great to see some of them, in fact, at our uh, exec meeting last week. Um, some new faces and new energy and, yeah, excitement that's about fantastic. what is possible for Victoria. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really exciting. Really, really wonderful. And I also have to say thank you to you, Alana, oh. because it, it wasn't just a Victorian effort. I think this is, mm. this is the beauty of the Democrats and how they work. And so there was significant support at a national level um, to get that happening and to get that done. And you've been a huge part of getting that happening and support for it happening. Oh, thank um, you. So thank you. Um, it was so important for us as a party for everyone to pull together and support Victoria because I know that when the time comes, Victoria will, will pull together and support New South Wales or support South Australia, WA, when it's our turn to register. Any party like the Democrats that is absolutely about wanting to connect and represent the people that they are representing, connect with them, have the conversations, have the deeper conversations and improve how democracy functions, Mm. 
that's a party that I want to be a part of. Absolutely. Um, they do exist. Yes, yeah. It's not, it's not all, um, you know, corrupt incompetence. There. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> there are other options available to you people. So, look, Leonie, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat to us. How are you feeling post-election? Like, I'm so glad that you recovered from your COVID because you also lost your voice for a while, which was, which was you oh, know. That was after the election. Yeah. Yes. Lost which is it what, completely. <laughs> oh, which is one of the reasons why the, the podcast has been a little bit of a hiatus because it was really, like, in an audio medium, it was really difficult to bring you on board and have a chat about things when you couldn't speak. So definitely have to have, have you back on again to discuss events in Victoria as they unfold. So fingers crossed. And Steve, always greatest co-host that uh, I could ever hope to have. Um, Thank you very much. Yes, no, thank you. And look, Paul Roger couldn't make it tonight, but we'll have a chat with him and see. We'll bring him on and uh, when he's free and ha- have a chat and see how things went in South Australia as well. Until then, take care, dear listeners, and we'll chat to you soon. Thank you so much to Leonie for joining us and for her patience while Steve and I worked through some unexpected feelings we had about the economy. No doubt they will come up again when we go through the October budget that the Albanese government has planned. Budget nerds have two budget episodes to look forward to this year. Leonie has taken on the role of communications officer for the Victorian team in the lead up to the state election. So I'm looking forward to having her back on the podcast to keep us updated on all things Victoria as we head to November. And hopefully soon we'll have lead Senate candidate for South Australia, Roger Yazbek, on for more post-election analysis as the new government and the new opposition settle in to what we hope will be a new way of doing politics. We'll see. If you live in Victoria and you'd like to help out the Victor Vision with the state election or keep up to date on their progress, you can support us by joining the party or you can sign up our newsletter at democrats.org.au. The state elections in our other divisions are a bit further into the future, but those teams are also hard at work preparing for state registration and developing state-specific policies, and they would welcome your support as well. The Morrison years might be mercifully over, but as we saw in the federal election, the fight for better, more accountable politics is just beginning. Stay tuned. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.